0: Hi, I'm Hal. This is the Living in a Body podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, guess what? Today's episode 40. 40 episodes. This one's called George and Hal, the Nothing to Do book. And it goes like this My best friend in late elementary school was my next door neighbor at the time, George Bauman. Last week I called George on the phone and we talked for about an hour. He's in Rochester, New York now. The Walker and the Bauman families have stayed in touch over the years. But George and I haven't really spoken for more than a few minutes since sixth grade. I'm grateful to be connected again. As grown men on the phone, we had such an honest and enjoyable conversation. By the end of the call, we were each expressing an interest in rekindling our long-paused friendship. In 1972, my parents packed me and my three sisters into our Volvo station wagon and moved us from the south side of Chicago to the west side of Kent. With a little help from my grandparents, mom and dad were able to afford their dream house on the Beach Drive, Norwood Street Circle. It was a 1950s ranch with majestic trees for climbing and lots of open space for exploring. We were just a stone's throw up the hill from Long Coy Elementary School. I could roll out of bed, run across the Akron right away, and skip down the hill right into my second grade classroom. These days, due to my illness, I don't get to visit my mom's house all that often. But for 50 years now, I've had the privilege of calling that ranch on Beach Drive home. It took me a couple years, but eventually I realized the joy of having a boy about my age living in the house right next door. It wasn't just any boy though, it was George Bauman, one of the great young inventors of the 20th century. George was a couple years older than me, but we had similar temperaments and we were just about the same size. In late elementary school we became the very best of friends. Looking back, as a duo, George and I were unstoppable. The Baumans were first-generation immigrants from West Germany. They moved from Dortmund to Kent, Ohio in April of 1970, just two weeks before four students were killed by the National Guard at Kent State. On our recent phone call, George recalled the profound impact that the May four shooting had on him and his young family. I can just imagine Mr. and Mrs. Bauman and their two children, strangers in a strange land, greeted with lockdowns, riots, shootings, and the National Guard. Thinking that the U.S. was a peaceful and stable place, the Baumanns showed up right in the middle of the turmoil of 1970. George and his sister Catherine arrived in Kent speaking no English. He remembers that the first few months of first grade, his mom, Elspeth, sat right next to him to translate the lessons. I love the comforting sweetness of that image. But George also shared with me the story of bullies calling him names on the playground. With no other German families around, the Baumans were like aliens. The mean kids called sweet little George derogatory names like Kraut. It touched my heart to hear these recollections for the first time. I guess it's these early life stories that helped make George the man that I admire so much today. Thanks to the tutoring of George's teacher, Miss Young, by the end of the first summer, Catherine and George were both fluent in English. Just a couple years later, when the Walker family arrived with three girls and a boy, a lifelong connection between two families was born. George remembers meeting me for the first time. Interestingly, I was sick in bed. He came over to pay a visit, and the first thing that he noticed was the calendar on my wall. The fact that it was a Tolkien-themed calendar gave George a good feeling about the potential of our friendship. To this day, I've never seen the movies, I've never read the books, and I know very little about Tolkien. But apparently I had the calendar on my wall. This calendar was actually the impetus for George to become one of the biggest Tolkien nerds on the planet. George still has this calendar in his possession as the cornerstone of his vast collection, complete with my original handwriting and all. George and I became inseparable. I'd dial his number on the phone, and when his mom would answer, I'd say politely, ''Hello, may I speak with George?'' When George would pick up, the boy and me would come alive. Hi, George, you want to play? Within seconds, we'd meet at the halfway point for our next adventure. There was no fence between our yards, just grass and trees and sun and sky. We had the whole neighborhood for our roaming. That is, as long as we didn't set foot in Mr. Casto's yard. That was our only limitation. The Baumann's house was an exotic mystery to me. In the home, among themselves, they spoke mostly German. My friend's name was Schurchen, which is the diminutive for George. There was Big George and there was Little George. Every morning they ate homemade German waffles with anise flavoring. They kept German candy in the candy drawer and George's mom sunbathed topless in the backyard, German style. When George and I would play in the basement, Mr. Baumann would sometimes call us into his office to quiz us on math facts. I was younger than George and not quite as smart, so I remember being mildly terrified as Mr. Baumann questioned us with his stern German accent. George and I were creators. Back then, we didn't have video games, and we weren't that interested in TV, so we had to make up our own fun. In fact, we created our very own book called The Nothing-To-Do Book. It still exists somewhere today. This was a spiral-bound Kent State Manila notebook where we listed categories at the top of each page. The categories were objects like ball, bike, frisbee, ramp, and tire. Below each category, we listed the names of the games that we invented. Interestingly, there were no explanations and no rules written on the page. I guess all those details were stored in our young, impeccable memories. Frisical was one of the most memorable games. One player is on a bike and the other player is throwing a frisbee. The object was for the frisbee thrower to strike the bike without hitting the person riding it. If the rider was able to catch the frisbee, then the roles were reversed. George and I don't recall if there was any scorekeeper or if there was ever a winner to the game. It seems that the point of frizzicle, like most of our other games, was just the endless freedom of long summer days spent playing with a best friend. One of our greatest triumphs was the creation of a frisbee golf course. This was a nine-hole course that combined our two spacious backyards and the Akron property that spanned the area between us and the elementary school. We painted white lines around the trees to signify each hole. I remember the first hole that teed off from George's deck. You had to throw the disc between two tall cypress bushes and aim for the cherry tree in the back. As I write this, almost 50 years later, the white lines on the trees have long since faded. But I can still feel the amazing feeling when one of us would score a hole-in-one on that very first throw. We had to make sure that the frisbee didn't land in Mr. Casto's yard, though. Mr. Casto was very particular about who set foot on his grass. I kind of wish I could meet Mr. Casto one more time. I'd love to find out if he was really as mean as I remember him being. I'm certain there must have been some warmth beneath his persnickety approach to lawn maintenance. Mr. Casto will live forever in the fabled story of my early life there on the Beach Norwood Circle. I mean, who could ever forget Mr. Casto, Mrs. Woodring, Mrs. Clark, Mary Lou White, the Troyers, and of course the Petersons. In my parents' basement, there was a large, empty crawl space beneath the garage. The only way to enter this space was to climb over the plumbing and crawl through a big hole in the concrete block wall behind the water heater. For several days, my mom heard all kinds of commotion coming from the basement, but she didn't inquire as to what was going on. Little did she know that George and I were in that dusty crawl space excavating, removing construction rubble, and building cardboard walls. We were creating our nothing-to-do book clubhouse. It still exists today, and the switchable light that George and I rigged up still works. In that secret space, there's a mural on the wall, some old carpet padding, a tire that was used as a lounge chair, and a 1978 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records. I like to think about the day when the next owners of my mom's house discover this clubhouse for the first time. It's like a time capsule from 1979. George was a collector. He introduced me to the late 70s craze of beer can collecting. I remember being so in awe of his collection that lined the window and formed a pyramid on the wall. George's dad would travel from city to city and bring back classy beer cans with cool designs. In order to keep them in pristine condition, Mr. Baumann would open the can from the bottom so the tabs stayed intact. In terms of collecting, I was just a dabbler. My dad didn't travel from city to city. But I did have a few cool stamps, a few beer cans, and some coins that my grandparents had given me. I could never live up to George, though who, in terms of collecting, was the true master. George and I were explorers. He was the first non-family member with whom I ever touched tongues. It's a vague memory now, but George confirms that it did actually happen. In the place where the walker's yard met the Bowman's yard, George and I touched tongues, and then we overreacted to the whole experience. It was just good old-fashioned curiosity between two pre-adolescent boys. There's only one time that I remember George and I getting into any trouble. We had discovered the joy and the excitement of the slingshot. If I'm not mistaken, we made our own out of clothes hangers and rubber bands. On one summer evening, we were hiding behind some bushes on South Francis Street, and we were shooting pebbles at the passing cars. Unfortunately, One of those unlucky shots smashed the passenger window of one of those unlucky cars. The car owner slammed on his brakes and chased us by foot through the neighborhood all the way back home. I made it home safely, but I soon heard that dreaded knock on the front door. George and I were in big trouble. I don't think we ever did that again. Sadly, in seventh grade, I abandoned my friendship with George in favor of a new best friend. Dave Mastrione. I'm ashamed to admit that when Dave made disparaging comments toward my old friend, I didn't stand up for George. Led by peer pressure, fear, and insecurity, I joined in on the name-calling. In our recent conversation, George and I both expressed our sadness that we went our separate ways. I'm not exaggerating when I say that as two young creatives, the partnership between George and Hal had earth-shaking potential. If only we'd stuck together. I'm sorry, George. I look forward to talking with you again soon. I send blessings to you and the whole Bauman family, especially in this time after the death of your dad. Well, George, I'm so glad we got plopped down next to each other all those years ago. I'm so glad to know you. Sincerely, your friend, Hal. Hal. Well, everyone, that's episode 40, Living in a Body. Thank you so much for reading. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here. Please feel free to leave a comment. Tell me about your best friend as a kid. Tell me anything. I'd look forward to hearing it. And as always, enjoy living in that body of yours. It's not going to be there forever. Happy Saturday. All the best to you. Bye-bye.